This podcast brought to you by the Information Architecture Institute. Through education, advocacy, services, and social networking, the IAI has 1,400 members from 80 countries demonstrating the value of information architecture to the world at large. By the IDEA Conference. IDEA brings together the world's foremost thinkers and practitioners, sharing the big ideas that inspire, along with practical solutions for the ways people's lives and systems are converging to affect society. And by Boxes and Arrows. Visit boxesnarrows.com slash about slash participate to be a part of your peer written journal. And special thanks to Axure, Moray, and IRIS for their sponsorship of Boxes and Arrows, as well as the many other sponsors of the IDEA Conference. The rise of virtual worlds, such as World of Warcraft and EverQuest, has prompted new questions about the status of games in a digital age. Thomas Malaby's research at Linden Lab, makers of Second Life, suggests that game design and game development practice are becoming a key part of how some high-tech companies operate. Instead of relying on top-down and procedural decision-making, these organizations contrive complex and game-like systems that promise to generate legitimate decisions from the ground up. I hope everyone enjoys the podcast. Cheers. And uh, thank you to Russ and to the Information Architecture Institute for uh, inviting me. Yes, I'm a cultural anthropologist. I study uh, games and society, uh, organizations and technology. I spent all of 2005 and a little bit on either end, uh, more than that, at Linden Lab in San Francisco, trying to understand how this company sort of makes this odd product. Um, you know, this second life that they make is really supposed to make itself. Uh, and how do you do that when you're a company? How do you make something that's supposed to make itself? Um, I'll be talking about that issue in more detail, um, but I'm going to take this opportunity also to make a few broader connections and, and maybe get us thinking about this current moment when in, an increasing proportion of our digital lives is saturated, if not with games, then by increasingly game-like experiences. Now, these game-like experiences are architected quite intentionally by a generation of developers that have come to see combining software development and game design as the path to vibrant online experience. So my aim is to focus on these makers of large-scale online games and virtual worlds as a means of asking what picture of the human is embedded in much of that incredibly complex architected software. The challenge I'm making is that even these most apparently social of online experiences are not architected to be very social at all. So this is not Second Life. This is Tribes, actually, Tribes Vengeance, I think. This was the favorite office game in Linden Lab uh, when I was there in 2005. Any given day, sort of toward the end of the workday, maybe as early as 4 o'clock, uh, you'd start to hear kind of profanities and shouts and, and hollers around the office as, as a number of the employees uh, started to blow off steam by playing tribes. Now, it's not a virtual world. Um, it only supports a small number of players at a time, but there's two reasons I want to start with it, um, in addition to the fact that I just really like this image. Um, first, I'd like you to notice the first-person perspective that the player of this game has. The gun is right there. And we can even see part of the player's arm, or, or more precisely, that of the player's avatar, from whose point of view this screenshot was taken. The resolution is high. The movements, we may rightly imagine, are fa fast-paced. 
We may also note the apparent physics of the world. There is a kind of gravity, overcome in a limited way with jetpacks, and objects would appear to have the ability to bounce off of each other and so on. There's also a small map in the upper right, which gives a top-down view of the scene. From noticing this, we can imagine a bit about what it might be like to participate in this game. It calls for a lot of practiced mastery, which must be executed very rapidly. The targeting circle in the middle, we can guess, must be very important. We may even just from the image surmise that to participate in this game calls for the rapid mastery not only of movement and of visual and perhaps oral information, but also of the targeting system itself. In this case, as in most first-person shooters, the mouse and the keyboard each handle part of this effort. One moves with the W, A, S, and D keys, plus others, and one targets with the mouse. So this is a particular kind of game, and one that we might say demands practiced, embodied, individual mastery of a complex and contingent, that is, open-ended, environment. This is what games are very good at doing, contriving open-endedness, and this is a particular kind of game in that, in that sense. So as I mentioned, uh, this is the official game of Linden Lab, and that's the second reason I wanted to, to start with it. You know, those, uh, those darkened office that the developers like, and then you suddenly hear these shouts and, and trash talking. The Linden Lab developers were very uh, game-oriented. Many of them came from game development backgrounds, and even if they didn't, they loved playing games. And I want us to keep that in mind as we start to talk about virtual worlds in general, uh, just how much they owe to games. So what are, what are virtual worlds? Virtual worlds are online, now graphical, the first ones were text-based, persistent environments for broad-based social interaction. They are uh, often games, but they don't always have fundamental game objectives. Even the text-based ones uh, had that kind of variety. They reflect a change in what games can be, which seems to have begun with pen and paper, or pencil and paper role-playing games, actually. The removal of end conditions from a game, so that a game could just be persistent, just go on and on and on. You don't need to wait for the end to know who won or who lost or to tally anything up, it, but it, it's still a game. All of these virtual worlds have that kind of persistent quality. In order to make them, there had to be a rather complex, and actually to make any computer games at all, a rather complex accommodation that had to be reached between software code, which after all is Boolean. I mean, it's not supposed to be contingent. It's not supposed to uh, act in random ways. And games, which are all, uh, in my view, about trying to architect that kind of open-endedness. And virtual worlds uh, arose as those things came together, they have a number of different uh, lineages that uh, they can point to, the, the muds and moos and mushes of online text-based virtual worlds, console games and their uh, graphical uh, improvements. There's, ju there's just a, a number of them, but they've all come together in the context of our powerful networking technology today, high-speed access, uh, to create these persistent and open-ended, that is, contingent environments where people can do things People can expend effort. Well, what happens when people expend effort in one of these games? What happens is that stakes start to accumulate. Because they're persistent and because they're open-ended, the efforts that people make can accumulate in, say, social relationships, right? People can accumulate social capital in that way through the reciprocal ties that are the kind of currency of social capital. 
They can accumulate competencies, uh, what's called cultural capital, even credentials. You know, someone can say, well, I'm a uh, avatar designer in Second Life. You know, that's a credential from Second Life that has accumulated within that world. Um, and they also accumulate things that are m valuable in a kind of market fashion, material capital, things that they can buy and sell. So cash, commodities, connections, competencies, credentials, all of these things uh, are possible in virtual worlds to accumulate. And that's wh why they start to look like everyday life in, in a fashion. They start to have real things at stake, lasting things at stake. Now let's talk about, uh, about one of the most uh, well-known right now, World of Warcraft. So you can immediately note some similarities with the screenshot from Tribes. It's a first-person perspective, and you could, if you wanted, zoom in, you know, so that you were looking right out of the character's eyes, although most people don't play that way. It's a complex system as well. But even just from looking at the screenshot, we might start to understand that it seems to be a bit less urgent. <laughs> the information that you're taking in is uh, less brute physical information about fast-moving things in an environment. Instead, we have this wider range of kinds of information, right? We have uh, lots of text. We have chat boxes. We've got information about what kinds of, well, they're called buffs, what kinds of beneficial things are currently on the character. We've got lots of information across the top about how much money you have and how many people from your guild, that is your in-game social organization, are online. Uh, you've got all these ability buttons across the bottom. So, it is similarly a very complex system, and it has the same system of movement for targeting and selection. It's shared by a very wide variety of games, not just FPS, that is first-person shooters. The WAS and D keys to move around and the mouse to target and select. So we see some similarities there, and that accumulation of stakes that I mentioned uh, is, is, becomes very important in these games. In World of Warcraft, for example, to own this uh, kind of mount, which you can ride, uh, this is a nether drake, takes an enormous amount of investment of player time. Uh, you have to put in days upon days. It takes at least several weeks of very dedicated playing to accumulate the in-game kind of uh, reputation with a particular non-player faction that they will, in the end, give you this mount. So then once you have it, you can fly around anywhere in the game with it, and all of the other players know that that means something, that you did something. You spent this many hours doing that, and only your character or only you did it. So it's a credential, really. It's an in-game credential. And these kinds of status displays of distinction, as they do in all societies, all human societies, can become very, very important. Now here we have another screenshot of a bunch of uh, a group there, a five-person group that have just finished an instance. Um, I'm right there in the middle. Uh, and, uh, and you see how complex the, uh, the information again is. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm the guild leader actually of a, of a group of academics uh, who, who play World of Warcraft uh, and our friends and family, which is, which is kind of fun. Um, now there is a collaborative element in these games. Now, I mentioned at the beginning that a lot of these environments are really not architected to be social. But we can't deny that they provide means to group, to be social. 
for this part of the game, uh, in order to uh, even go into this place uh, and, and not die the first time you try and take on a monster there, you need four of your friends. And you need to work together. Some people need to, uh, one person needs to be taking the hits and taking the damage. That's the tank. Other people are dealing the damage. They're the DPSers. And then you need at least one person to heal, right? If you have that trio, and it was uh, pioneered in EverQuest, uh, then you can start to move through this uh, complicated dungeon called an instance. And there's a whole bunch of them in the world. And, uh, and accomplish things. Well, what do you accomplish? Through most of the game, well, it seems like most of the game, let's just say through part of the game where you level until you reach the highest level in the game and then you stop leveling, you accumulate what's called experience. See, there we have a kind of in-software representation of this accumulation of stakes, right? And you go up and level. And everybody wants to do that. Everybody's doing that together. And it actually is a kind of unifying uh, experience socially. But once you reach the level cap, it's called, which was 60, then 70, now it's 80. You suddenly cannot advance that way anymore. You're not at all advancing in the same mode, right? Everyone is not gaining experience and advancing. Instead, what do you want? You want stuff. You want this very, very, very powerful stuff that drops off of these bosses that you defeat. But they don't drop the same thing every time. And maybe you really want this one thing which you can only get from this one dungeon. You run it with your friends or maybe even with strangers over and over and over and other stuff keeps dropping. The game is built uh, to prompt some social experience along the way toward the what's called the end game. But once you're at the end game, suddenly it becomes very individual. It's about how do I maximize my performance so I can play with the groups that can get me the right stuff, the right loot. It looks like social groups, <laughs> but in fact, uh, it's a lot of people with individual interests who are grouping together for very, uh, you might say, utilitarian reasons. Not in every case, but often. But let's return to this notion of a complex system. I'll get back to that idea of the social in a bit. World of Warcraft is a very complex system, and there's a lot that Blizzard, the makers of World of Warcraft, intentionally hide from users. They don't want all of the information about the algorithms within the game to be available to users, because then users would be able to do what's called minimaxing much more easily. So there's a lot of experimentation, actually, that goes on, a lot of communication about, well, what is the system back there that Blizzard won't tell us about? There's an enormous amount of information in the game, uh, enormous amount of information collected outside of the game to help you play the game, this very complex thing. So here's Wowhead. Uh, you do quests while you're in the game, and if a quest kind of trips you up and you're not quite sure where to go or what to see or who to find, where to find that thing, you can go to Wowhead and type in the quest title, and you'll just be able to find not only that information, but below here, and I don't have it in the screenshot, a bunch of comments, people saying, you know, little helpful things. Well, you know, don't forget to grab this before you leave. It's helpful, because then when you get there, you can use that thing, right? So there are all of these out-of-game resources uh, which rely on kind of a lot of individuals contributing uh, information. Here's uh, the website for Elitist Jerks. Well, it's one of the most famous and long-running uh, guilds in World of Warcraft. Uh, and it's, their forums there are the place for the most intense 
uh, sophisticated uh, working out of what that complex system is that Blizzard won't really share. It's called theory crafting, what they do. Uh, and people go to this website and, uh, and try and, uh, and weigh in and hopefully not get flamed for their lack of sophistication. Uh, at Curse uh, and other similar websites, you can buy add-ons that are plugins, basically, for the game that work within the game. So you can start to understand how complex this really is to play the game, uh, how much is available out there to learn and to master. And what is it all for? Well, it for serious gamers at the end of the game in the world of Warcraft, it's for maximizing the potential of your character to point to numbers frequently as evidence of that, that you are a great player because you did so much damage on a particular battle. This is a place called uh, WoW Web Stats. While you're in the game, you can run a, an add-on that will track what everyone does as you go through a five-person, 10-person, 25-person instance and it will be able to lay it all out on a spreadsheet. Who was the best healer? Who was the best damage dealer? Who was the best tank? In very precise terms. So these performance monitoring systems give individualized performative feedback and they prompt this individual mastery, this minimaxing as it's called. And groups of people together can accomplish pretty remarkable things. This is, in fact, a 40-person raid. As you can see from all those green boxes, each one is a player. And uh, th this group has just completed uh, a, a challenge within the game. It's called an achievement, uh, defeating every boss of the rival faction. That is, the leader of the elves, the leader of the humans, the leader of the dwarves, and the leader of the, uh, the Draenei. It's called, if you defeat all of those people, um, kill those bosses, although they reappear, you know, within a few minutes. Um, you get these special bears to ride. So, so all of this uh, means that World of Warcraft has a very powerful tension between the individualized nature of game incentives and the need to group with others to accomplish those objectives. The intangibles of social experience frequently get pushed aside in favor of the individually measurable. So it doesn't seem so social after all, and some people have called World of Warcraft a massively single-player online game. So let's talk about Second Life a little bit. Now it's quite similar to World of Warcraft. That interface that I talked about, the mouse and keyboard, is exactly the same. Well, nearly exactly. Just so close that if you spend a lot of time in one and then go into the other like I do, you start to fumble around a little bit just because it's not quite the same. But the fundamental and shared game objectives are gone. I mean, this is a world that has uh, a physics, like tribes in World of Warcraft. It's got uh, that interface. It's got all of these things that games have, but it doesn't have game objectives. But it has the persistence, and it has the open-endedness, and stakes do accumulate in Second Life. In fact, there's even more scope for that because whereas World of Warcraft doesn't let the users uh, create hardly anything in the game. I mean, actually, all that you really get to create for yourself is your name and your guild's name. That's it. No buildings, no custom designs for your tabard that you wear or anything. Uh, it's really at one end of the spectrum for kind of non-user uh, creation. Second Life is way at the other end. You can make in Second Life in a whole bunch of different ways. And it's a very social environment in, in the sense that there's other users there. 
and you can see them and they can see you. Uh, it becomes uh, an environment where social distinction, just like in World of Warcraft with that nether drake mount, uh, social distinction is important. You want to look good. You know, uh, I hadn't been in Second Life, uh, I confess, for some time, uh, maybe six or eight months, when I uh, went back in this spring to do a in-world interview for Metanomics. And uh, I <laughs> logged in and, and I knew my avatar was out of date. You know, <laughs> I knew that I was not really going to look like I was on top of things. I immediately went to a store and bought a new suit, you know. <laughs> it has that effect on you because just like in everyday life, those things matter, right? There are stakes that have accumulated. Now, how do you make in Second Life? I mean, you can obviously buy, which I do a lot of, but, but you can make. And you're actually prompted to make very early on in the process. You are given an interface. This is a little bit of an outdated version of it, but it's essentially the same still now, uh, by which you make yourself. You have a whole bunch of sliders here where you can uh, change, say, the, uh, the size of the head, right? How flat the face is. I mean, it's very, very micro, actually. The height of your forehead, the width of your nose, width of your chin. There's just slider after slider after slider for this. So you're prompted very early on in the experience of Second Life to make yourself, to create things in the world. And people do create rather extraordinary things. Um, in, if you were in the world, you would see these kind of tattered tarps sort of wafting in the virtual breeze. You know, it's quite effectively done. Lots of lighting effects that can, that can be done as well. And that's all done uh, because every user is given content creation tools and they look like this, where you can uh, create a little basic geometric form, and the default texture is plywood, so it just looks like a little plywood thing, until you wrap things around it and change the texture. And you can stretch it and bend it and rotate it and do all these kinds of things and attach things to other things and build all the stuff that you've just seen. And importantly, in Second Life, everyone who makes anything owns the intellectual property rights to whatever they make. So that spawns an economy because there's an in-world currency and you can buy that in-world currency for any other national currency, right? Uh, things can be traded. Um, the makers of any given object can set permissions for those objects. Objects can be programmed as scripted to do certain things and textures can be wrapped around them. And when a whole bunch of people get together and do this collaboratively, they can make a rather remarkable thing in Second Life like this. This is uh, Chinatown which was a first-person shooter inside of Second Life, on an island in Second Life. And they did, had to do lots of clever programming things to make this happen. They really wanted reflections in the little pools of water on the floor. And the only way they could do that, actually, was to take this island that they'd gotten, sorry, I keep doing it, the island that they got from Linden Lab and, uh, and set the playing surface like a thousand meters into the air and build a complete mirror reflection of all the structures underneath the bottom, the floor level, right? And then allow you to just kind of see them through these, through these puddles, right? They did a lot of clever things to make this happen. They got the, the lighting to have this kind of foggy effect. It's a several blocks of a virtual Chinatown and you run around and shoot people up. It didn't, uh, it ran into problems because of lag. Uh, just, you know, you couldn't have more than a couple of people play it at a time. Well, what it should illustrate to you is, is the preeminence of making in Second Life. Users are supposed to make things. 
So I've talked about a couple of things already. I've talked about the complexity of these systems, uh, the performative mastery that's required of them, what virtual worlds owe to games uh, in their interface and otherwise. Um, but when we start talking about making within the world, and I'm reminded, of, in just in saying it again, I'm reminded of Lisa's talk, right? Um, where is where's the making? Uh, is the making what the users are doing, and that's what you're trying to make possible? Is the making what you're doing? How do we dif differentiate those things? Uh, I would suggest one of them we might call creating, and the other one making. Um, but I'll get back to that in a moment. So Second Life is essentially supposed to be like this. It's supposed to be a world that makes itself in this uh, classic Escher image. Although Shane Willis, who's a photographer who does uh, modified photography online, he did this, which I thought was really nice. Um, you know, that's what Second Life is supposed to be. And in that uh, ideal, is a set of ideas that have a, a very specific history. And they have very powerful implications for what the social is here in Second Life. I talked briefly about what the social is in World of Warcraft. But how social is Second Life? What kind of uh, social uh, activities are, are possible in it? But maybe even more to the point, what kinds of social activities are architected to be possible, are, are encouraged in the architecture, in the design? And I was interviewing Philip Rosedale the founder of, of Second Life. I interviewed him a couple times, but in one of, the, uh, one of my interviews with him, I asked him whether they set out to make a digital society in making Second Life. And uh, he said the most remarkable thing. I mean, from a social scientist perspective, what he said just, just really blew my mind. He said, uh, I was always struck by the expressive and not so much societal elements. I didn't go in feeling like we're going to make people's lives better, but I did go into it feeling like none of it was interesting unless there were a lot of people involved. Now, as a social scientist, that is just mind-blowing. You know, the idea that we're not making a society, but what, we what we're going to make is only going to be really cool if a lot of people are using it. So what exactly... <laughs> Uh, what are people under that view? I was really led to puzzle that out after he, he said this to me. Just, just what picture of the human is this that wants to have a lot of people expressing, that word expressive is actually really important, expressing themselves, but through which no societal effects are really supposed to emerge? Because in Second Life, uh, it certainly is a social place. People end up in Second Life doing a lot of things that Linden Lab really didn't anticipate or welcome very much, that they found kind of puzzling. People started to create groups and exclude other people from those groups. Right? They started to uh, engage in politics. They started to engage in all of these social things that people do everywhere, at all places, all around the world. But this was a surprise for London Lab. They had to really work right around the time I was there to get in the habit of thinking of content, that's a very important word around Second Life, content as something more than the stuff you could build with those tools I showed you, right, that you could 3D model or script or texture map. Because people were doing things that sort of made the people in the Linden Lab go, oh, really? They, did they want to do that? They want to set a group just for themselves and exclude people from their spit? Why would anyone want to do that? So uh, what is this idea of people? 
Well, we shouldn't be surprised that this idea of people, uh, and, where, and I'll talk about where it comes from in a minute, but it didn't just underwrite Second Life's architecture. It underwrited the architecture of Linden Lab itself. I mean, these were ideals. People at Linden Lab were, were committed to these ideas. And they wanted to run their own company the same way that they wanted to create Second Life. So the same kinds of ideas that um, individuals seek to uh, master complex systems. And that if you get a bunch of individuals all individually seeking to master that complex system, you'll get aggregate effects that you really like, aggregate effects that are good for society. Anything else that's social is actually a bit of a problem in that view. And that underwrote how they ran their own company. There was a uh, uh, wonderful example of this. And it gets uh, us a little into the territory of how games come in uh, in the efforts to make this happen. So uh, in Linden Lab, uh, authority is a problem. Vertical authority is a problem, similar to, the, to what we heard from Lisa in the Drupal project. It's really illegitimate to have uh, either from, for kind of charismatic reasons, as it's been called, or bureaucratic reasons, for vertical authority to impose itself uh, on people in the company and tell them what to do. Now, it certainly happened around Linden Lab. There was vertical authority in practice, but everyone was in denial that it existed. It could not be the public grounds for why any particular decision was right, why, why, any, why we should do X rather than Y. So instead, you have this enormous suspicion about vertical authority, a real interest in trying to tap into the aggregate wisdom of all these individuals, right? And the way to get into that and sort of tap into that wisdom of crowds, as Sarah Wiki called it, was through games, or at least one of the ways they tried was through games. So they had a, a, pro, a software development system called JIRA. I'm guessing a lot of people are familiar with JIRA in the room. Uh, you know, tracks bugs and adding of features and all those kinds of things. But it's a very customizable system, and, and they love this at Linden Lab. And Philip Rosedale got, got the idea that, well, why don't we tell everyone in the company, there's about 60 people at this time, that every task they are doing in their jobs needs to be a task in JIRA, whether it pertains to the client development or not. You know, add another urinal to the men's bathroom. That needs to be a task in JIRA, this kind of thing. So everyone does that. You see, there's a mandate. There's a vertical mandate that no one really recognizes as such, but there it happened. Now everyone adds these things. Uh, so they, they do this in JIRA, and then... He says, well, if we take all of those tasks and we get people to vote on them, then we might be able to tap into this wisdom of crowds. No, even better, because voting is a problem. It creates lobbying and all these social effects we don't like. Let's have people play a game. So they coded up a web page that would grab two tasks from JIRA, and employees were told to go to it and pick a winner, right, and do this 10 times a day for a few weeks. And effectively, each winner that we picked was like the winner of a chess match between two tasks. And the, and the ELO chess ranking algorithm was behind the scenes, crunching through all this data. And it generates this emergent list, list of the tasks in JIRA, supposedly from the most important to the least. Right? So there's this, this desperate effort, really, to find direction, to generate legitimate decisions about what to do next as a company. And games were, were part of the path to do that. Now, that, uh, it isn't just Linden Lab, and, and apologies to Lisa, I added the Drupal up there, at least pre-D7UX. Um, and MetaPlace, uh, which is uh, Raf Koster's uh, world, has uh, many of the same assumptions behind it, and Google does too. 
And just as I wrap up, let me give you a little bit of a, of a sense of where these ideas come from. They come from uh, Norbert Wiener uh, after World War II, or in the midst of World War II. He was involved in these, these new kinds of projects and the urgency of World War II to innovate, to get the bomb project done and a bunch of other projects. Uh, in that context, a lot of institutions that had previously vertically controlled what the people under them did, like the military and, the, and industry, basically said, we really need this and we don't know how work with each other and get it done. And a new style of work develops that Fred Turner talks about extensively and a, and a couple of other authors. And out of that come a few ideas about technology and people and groups. So out of that come the idea that we have not just technology in, over there and people over here, we have socio-technical systems and they're complex. And individuals or people are actually, human beings are people who seek to master these complex systems. Again, it's a very individualized picture of what people are. You have Stuart Brand and the Whole Earth Catalog, the subtitle of which, you can see it there on the right, subtitle of the catalog was Access to Tools. Technology is under this view, uh, a tool through which any individual can uh, express themselves. Right? They can gain mastery over this complex technology and do what they want to do, each individual. And if they are all doing what they want to do, then we'll get the social effects we want. No one has to be above there. It doesn't have to be any direction. You just need to give everyone access to technology. And you have uh, Ken Kesey, by the way, and the Merry Pranksters, very close to Stuart Brand, uh, are great examples, if anyone wants to look into it, of attempts to use games very early on to solve this, again, this very puzzle of, well, if you're denying vertical authority, then where are you going to get any decisions at all? And they used to play a game where they would... Uh, you know, they use a little spinner, like uh, from Life or something like that, and whoever it pointed toward would have authority over the group for 30 minutes, right? So when we're thinking about games, uh, mastery, and complex systems, what we end up with is uh, a realization that a specific set of ideas in the United States about people and what they're all about, uh, gamers of a particular kind, really, I mean, because there's a lot of other games that are not about individual mastery of complex system, but, but gamers of a particular kind uh, are really at the heart of a picture of the human that underwrites uh, a big segment of what's happening online right now. Uh, that idea of man the player really is there. Homo Ludens is a famous book by that name, but we could also take another Latin, Homo Fabricans, man the maker. So the users in Second Life are essentially conceived as gamers in this individualized way who are seeking to master this complex system. And in the context of that, they can make stuff. And what Lemon Lab seems to tell the users is that you're the makers, you're the ones making the world. You have all the agency you would ever need. Right? But what's left out of that picture is this one, Homo Crayons, the creator. Who are the creators making the system and how is their access different than the access of the users? Right. This, again, relates to something uh, Lisa said, and I, I created this <laughs> just in, because of what she was saying. You know, the, the creators are kind of like the designer developers for, uh, for, for Lisa's. You know, they're on a, they occupy a, a different level, you know. Their making is different. It's creating. And the users are, are, uh, don't get to tinker under the hood, you might say. So under that context, how should the design take place? If the only people who can have access under the hood are the designers and the developers, and if they have a peculiar picture of human beings in the world, how can that possibly bridge the gap to um, human beings that are not actually just gamers in that uh, individual sense? Thanks.
All right, we have time for some questions. All the way in the back. Oh, I'm running. Great. I'm out of shape and old. This will be fun. Thank you. Um, so there seem to be a few different um, threads running through there, but one of them that was very clear was the idea of the individual. Um, and when I think of that, I mean, I, I assume that sort of what that's excluding to some extent is the, the collective. Um, so I'm curious, I mean, first of all, is that what you mean? And, and second of all is like what would be some examples of uh, where, where a, a game wouldn't be focused on uh, on the individual but, but actually uh, be centered around the collective or uh, some kind of um, relationship kind of uh, orientation. I'm not sure. You know, the collective can mean uh, collective in the invisible hand sense, in the Adam Smithian sense, right? That if a whole bunch of people all make individual decisions in the marketplace, then in aggregate there will be a collective will that's represented by that. Um, that's a, you know, a liberal view, not in the typical liberal conservative, but in the classic meaning of liberal. Uh, so it's, it's a way of connecting the individual to the collective. And I would argue that this... Uh, set of ideas one can find at Linden Lab and, and other Silicon Valley, Valley companies is in fact techno-liberal in a way. It, technology comes in there in a very important way, but it's the same set of ideas that uh, individuals are pursuing their individual interests to express themselves. And if they have the access to technology to do it, then the aggregate effects, is, that's the good stuff, that's the stuff we're interested in. Now collective can also mean uh, a more kind of self-conscious collective, right? Uh, a group that seeks to lobby for itself, that recognizes itself as different from another group. That is a very different notion, and that's usually what we mean by the social when we talk about the social and social sciences. Uh, and that is a view, uh, that is a, a kind of phenomenon that under the kind of ideology I'm talking about here is, is denied as legitimate. You know, lobbying is a problem around Linden Lab, for example, it smacks of politics, and on their mission statement in bold letters is no politics. <laughs> they don't want any kind of social, self-aware, collective action. They want a bunch of individuals acting that then, whose actions then get aggregated in a certain way. So, are there examples? Of, sorry, are there examples of that um, that kind of this kind of lobbying happening in in, in these sorts of settings? Um, that you've seen, or, and, and, and I'm just, yeah, I'm just. They would happen, and then they would they would try and find a way to eliminate it, you know. Like with Jira, they originally tried voting, and people would lobby for their projects. They'd go around to other people's desks saying, "Vote for my project," and well, that's a problem, you know. We can't have anyone talking about what projects are good and bad, apparently, right? <laughs> you know, it's an unusual view, really. Uh, Thomas, I haven't read your book, so I don't know if you actually do talk about this, but it's kind of related to oh. Great. I'm going to read your book. <laughs> um, uh, you mentioned that they uh, explicitly um, delegitimized any kind of political activity within mm -hmm. JIRA, for example. Right. Um, I wonder, I, I don't know if you know about this or it's talked about in your book, but the whole notion of the IBM virtual strike. Mm. You want to talk a little bit about that and how that relates to what you're talking about, the yeah, individual collective? It was after I stopped working on it, so I actually have not caught up on the details. I'd, I'd hesitate to, to say anything about it. This was um, 
just last year, wasn't it? Two years ago, yeah. Uh, so, no, I don't, I don't cover it in the book. And the book touches on what happens in Second Life uh, to kind of show parallels. But I was really focusing on the company. Um, Tom Belstorff did a, done a really nice book about uh, Second Life sort of from the inside. Uh, but it seemed to me that we have a lot of people looking at what communities and cultures are, go are emerging in virtual worlds, but we don't have people looking at how they're architected. So I don't have much more to say about that. I can talk about some other user protests that are more uh, in connection with what I knew. You know, the, um, so there's a great example in the point-to-point the -point teleportation option in Second Life, right? So very early on in the beta in Second Life, every user could teleport from any point to any point. And then uh, at one point, late in the beta, I think, or just after uh, release, uh, Linden Lab took out that feature and said, well, you can teleport from anywhere, but you have to arrive at a telehub in this kind of these locations, every you know, few squares in the grid. And then once you arrive at that location, there will be a little red beam that you, only you can see, you know, sort of a spotlight going into the sky, and you can fly to your destination. Why did they do that? Well, they did that because they were uh, very influenced by the ideas of Jane Jacobs and Death and Life of American Cities, right, where she says, you know, part of the reason New York is such a great city is because it's so inefficient. You know, people have to uh, walk by the local florists on their way to the subway station. They have, they, they're forced to encounter the unexpected. They're forced to encounter things that they might not otherwise set out to see if they could ideally go as they wish from one point to another. Uh, and that's part of the reason why modernist planning from her perspective was so misguided. Well, in Second Life, they impose this. You know, it's not really naturally emergent like it was in New York City. You know, the Linden Lab imposes this as a kind of social policy. Well, this will, this will help uh, keep us from balkanizing as a community. People will be forced to encounter these other individuals' uh, experiences that they've created as they conceived it. Well, this went on for a long time, but the telehubs uh, became really, truly a site for a lot of uh, interest and activity because you'd get a lot of eyes of avatars moving through there. Well, that created server load, and then those buildings wouldn't, wouldn't actually res in with any, you know, alacrity at all, and, and people get really frustrated, and they'd be bumping into individual in invisible buildings, and they just want to get where they want to go, and all the users know because we all have a certain awareness of what's possible in code. They know it's trivial to code point-to-point teleportation, and they know that the Lindens have it. That is, in-world, the Lindens can teleport from and to wherever they want. So they start lobbying for point-to-point -point teleportation. And they eventually get it. Even after Philip Rosedale and several places I, I uh, had the opportunity to witness tried to sell the users on this notion that it's for your own good, essentially, right? <laughs> Well, that's the issue here, isn't it? You know, is it, it's a public policy issue. Do you, do the users at times not know what's best for them? Now, that's a difficult question to confront. And we, we, because of the kind of the legacy of liberal thought, again, in the Smithian sense, we're not really used to confronting that question. We think that the collective will, however realized, especially in kind of, uh, you know, non-political ways, must be right. <laughs> but, there's a wonderful blog post by the Second Life user, Gwyneth Llewellyn, about the point-to-point -point change and how sad it made her because it really did allow people to just not have to, not have to see what they didn't expect. And there may be a you know, public policy problem if that's happening. Um, there is 
I guess implicit in the way you were describing the upper level of Warcraft, um, it, it sounded exactly like the philosophy of a lot of large corporations um, where mm -hmm. you, you have to work in teams, but um, the whole motivational structure is based upon individual achievement. Right. Um, I'm, I guess I'm interested in whether the, the second life kind of experience, is that only possible in small startup companies? Can you, or do you see that being a next generation of, of corporate philosophy that might actually extend out to, to larger operations? Well, I'm just going to be frank and tell you what, I, what, what I'm concerned about in that line, what, what I think will happen and what I'm concerned about. Because of the advent of game design techniques as, a par, as part of governance techniques for corporations, state governments, and all the rest, because now designing games is something we can do for our users, our citizens, and all the rest, our employees. Um, and games incent participation because they tap into something that's inherently compelling, the, the proper mixture of the unpredictable and the patterned. As human beings, speaking as an anthropologist here, as human beings, that's, that's what captures our attention, right? Neither too chaotic nor too routine. If it's just in between, wow, that's really interesting. Maybe I can find a way to master that and learn about it. So there's a very powerful kind of, uh, uh, games are a very powerful thing for commanding attention. And to me, what you start to see, uh, are starting to see more and more of, is institutions using games to incent participation, to, but not just civic participation, to do labor effectively. And if people are doing work because they're playing a game, we have to confront the question of whether that's, is that exploitation? Think about topcoder.com. Topcoder.com top has a contest every week to solve a coding problem. And you can register to participate, and you win $500 if your coding solution is the best one. But who owns the intellectual property rights to that coding solution? Top Coder. They then license it and sell it to other companies. You get a one-time fee, and they can profit from that innovation as long as they wish. So that's, that's what I'm concerned about, really, in terms of governance, is uh, moving beyond the bureaucratic model of governance and instead starting to use games to govern, what ends up being fair? If people are having fun, are they having fun? If a game commands my attention, does that mean by definition I'm having fun? Having studied gambling first in Greece before I did this research and seeing people playing these, uh, like this 50-50 dice game for enormous sums of money and just sitting there watching the results, there was no fun in that room at all. Uh, I'm not saying they were addicted, that's a whole other conversation. But it's not about fun. They were certainly engaged. So these are the, the, my concerns about what will happen in the future uh, with these kinds of ideas. All right. We're going to break for lunch. Thank you, Thomas. Um, Thank you. To hear even more presentations from the 2009 Idea Conference, point your browser to boxesnarrows.com and click on the podcast link. There you'll find access to the iTunes feed and more information about each presentation. Our heartfelt thanks to the organizers and sponsors of the fourth annual IDEA conference, the presenters, and of course to the global community. We look forward to feedback about future episodes that will be of greatest value to you, our listeners.